Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in once again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. It was reviling. What's that? That's name calling. That's heady mockery. If someone's coming up with an idea and someone doesn't agree with the idea, the way to approach that disagreement is to show why that idea is not sound. When someone does not do that and they revile, that is, they use name calling, it means they can't refute the soundness of the idea. Last week, Dr. Corbett opened the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth after he had spent time living with the Corinthians. It seems that after he left the city, all manner of rubbish was being spread around and Paul's credibility was being seriously challenged. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues a series of messages looking directly at Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And there are more than a few things for us to learn from what he wrote. Let's join him now for part two of the Corinthian series. And if you're joining with us online, uh, there may be an invitation for you to join us in our online foyer as well. And we'd love you to be a part of that. I want to pray, and I, I want you to pray as well, that God would speak to us this morning. And that at, at least this, and, I, and I'm mindful of a, a couple of scriptures that that teach us how to prepare our hearts for receiving God's word. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says this, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. Note this, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In Luke chapter 24, verse 45, this is talking about the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus. It says this, speaking of Jesus walking with these two men who are walking back to Jerusalem. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So I would like to pray a very simple prayer. And I'd like you to join me. God, open my heart to your word. And Father, help me to deliver your word to open hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at Paul's epistles. This is an exposition of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. And in our Bibles, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. You may be aware that the New Testament is arranged for Gospels, followed by Acts, which is the continuation of the Gospels. Then the New Testament is largely comprised of from the remainder of epistles. Epistles are letters. And those epistles are arranged from the longest epistle to the shortest epistle. They're also arranged, the epistles of Paul, longest to shortest, and then everyone else's. So that's how we understand where people somehow, churches long time ago decided that 1 Corinthians would come straight after Romans. In 1 Corinthians, and I guess I need to give you a little bit of background to this, because one of the things that will help us to understand any book of the Bible is a map. I'm mindful of a a trainee pastor that had to complete his studies of pastoring by, by going from, I think, Los Angeles in USA 
to the highlands of Scotland. He got this weird assignment to go to this very small church in a very small village in a very small part of Scotland. And when he arrived there, to, to fit, this was his what's called a practicum. He had, to, he had to complete this assignment in order to graduate from seminary, theological seminary. He, he got there and he met with the pastor and he said, and he's got his bags and things and books and study material and all the rest of it. And he said, um, where's my office? And the pastor said, turn around. And the church was located sort of just at the top of a hill. And looking down the hill, you could see the village. Houses this side, houses that side, some businesses associated in the, 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 the street there. And the pastor, the old pastor, Scottish guy with a beard, said to this clean-shaven young man from Los Angeles, there's your office there, as he pointed to all the houses of the village. And of course, the, the young trainee pastor said, I, I don't understand, which one is my office? <laughs> he said, no, no, no. I need you, first day on the job, to go and knock on every door in this town and introduce yourself. Because we all know each other. And you need to get to know everyone in this village too. So he did. And he, he knocked on the, the door of a, an old, tough, Scott Highlander who welcomed him in. And of course, the, the thing about being welcomed into someone's house is you go in. Otherwise, it's an insult if you refuse their hospitality. And so he went in to the house. And the, the old Scot said, can I make you a cup of tea? And he didn't drink tea, but part of pastoral training, which Kim and I can share you stories about, is... You say, yes, please. That's a whole other story, and I, I'm tempted to go there, but let's go here for the, for the moment. And so he, he got talking with this old Scot who said that he'd never been to that church. He knew the pastor well, but he really he thought there was nothing to Christianity, so why bother? Well, this, this was like a, a red flag to a bull to this young trainee pastor who was already set to save the world and he thought he might as well start with this guy. So he said, well, do you mind if I, if, if I come back and, and maybe we read through some of the stories about Jesus and let's just talk about them? And the old Scot, who didn't get many visitors, said, oh, I, I'd love that. Oh, no, that's Liverpool, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that, so... So he did, he came back and, and he's reading through the Gospels with this old Scot. He gave him a Bible. He's reading and, and, and the Scot said to him as he was reading, excuse me, wh where is that town? Like it was Bethsaida or something. Where, where is that town? He said, and he, he turned to the back of his Bible and he showed him a map. And, there, and he said, there it is there. And, and where was Jesus brought up? And he showed it, pointed on the map. And where did he go to, to do what he did? He pointed on the map and it was very, very confined. Like, you realise Israel is one third the size of Tasmania, right? It's a very, very small geographical place. And this old Scot who'd lived his entire life in that, that village in the highlands of Scotland, whose 
father had lived there, whose grandfather had lived there, whose great-grandfather, whose great-great-grandfather lived there. They'd lived there for generations. He said, are you meaning to tell me that this Jesus did what he did in that, in that area among those villages and, and occasionally went to the big city, which wasn't that far away? He said, yeah, that's right. He said, and people believed him? Yes, thousands believed him. Okay, I want to become a Christian. And the, and the trainee pastor said, he, he, he was confused. He said, because all he had done is pointed to a map. He's, and, he, and he said, yeah, I want to become a Christian. He said, sorry, I'm a bit confused. They didn't talk about this in Bible college. Um, what, why do you, what, what's happened? He said, I've lived all my life here. I know everybody for like 20 miles all around me. And they all know me. I, if someone was a scoundrel, we'd know it. Because we know everything about everyone. And if this Jesus was a scoundrel, he has had no place to hide. And if you're telling me that people were prepared to lay down their lives and follow him because they believed what he said was true, it had to have been true. With that in mind, having hopefully shared with you how maps can help you to understand what God wants to say to us Let's have a look at this as a way of reminder. This is the Mediterranean world. And we have Athens sort of in the middle up there and then Corinth. And you'll see it's connected by a bit of a land bridge. And then down below, um, this is, uh, depending on how you want to say, that, that land where Corinth is and Sparta is down the, the south of it, is Archaea or Archaea, depending on which pronunciation you want to use. The, the land further north is, is called Centria. Now, these are words that occur in the Bible. Corinth is connected by land bridge, essentially to mainland uh, Greece. And uh, several people have sent me photos how I mentioned that that land bridge, which is called an isthmus, um, the, Caesar Nero tried to put a channel through there so ships could get through. And that channel was completed in the 1800s. So that's how long it took them to do. It's fascinating. But this is interesting because when you read through Acts, you'll notice that Paul comes from this side of the Aegean up near Pergamum. And he travels by sea to Philippi. He then goes to Thessalonica. He then goes to Berea. He then comes down to Athens and then goes to Corinth. So let me tell you about the Apostle Paul's ministry in Corinth, why he went there for a start. In many respects, Corinth was more important than Athens and possibly more important than Rome. And the reason is it had over a million people living there. It was incredibly wealthy, as I mentioned. So now let me take you back to some of the story that helps us to understand how Paul came to Corinth. So in the book of Acts, if you're reading through Acts, you'll notice that that progression, that journey from, from Ephesus or north of Ephesus across to Philippi and then down to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. This is Acts chapter 18, verse 5. Paul's two traveling companions. By the way, there was someone else traveling with Paul, 
who Paul describes as a fellow worker and a true companion when he writes to the Philippians. And his name was Luke. And many scholars believe that Luke was actually a Philippian. Uh, now, someone said, where's that? And I said, Southeast Asia. That's a joke, by the way. It sounds like Philippines, but no one laughed. Except Jeanette moaned. All right, so when Silas and Timothy, Paul's travelling companions, arrived from Macedonia, which is the Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi area, Paul was occupied with the word in Corinth, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Notice this. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That expression, a worshipper of God, is also termed a, a, a fearer of God, a God-fearer. And what it means is they're a, they're a Gentile who believes in the God of Israel, essentially. That's, that's what that expression means. So his house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptised. And the Lord said to Paul one night, skipping down a few verses in Acts, Do not be afraid. Now why? What's going on? Well, we've just read that as Paul was preaching, there was great opposition. Not just great opposition. There was reviling. What's that? That's name-calling. That's petty mockery. Just a little digression here. If someone's coming up with an idea and someone doesn't agree with the idea, the way to approach that disagreement is to show why that idea is not sound. When someone does not do that and they revile, that is, they use name-calling, it means they can't refute the soundness of the idea. I want you to remember that some, next time someone calls you a bigot or intolerant or a something or other phobe because that's reviling, that's name calling and that's what Paul was up against. The hostility was intense. In fact, it led, if we were to dive a little bit deeper in Acts 18, it led to physical violence which is another form of I don't have an answer to counter your idea approach to life and so we see that there are some religions if they can't defend their claims against someone who comes with an idea that contradicts their claims they'll often resort to violence can i tell you as believers we never have to resort to violence to defend the truth of the gospel never do not be afraid jesus said but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I'm going to point one more thing out, then we'll move on. 
The promise that Christ gave Paul wasn't that he wouldn't be hurt. Because name-calling can hurt. The promise wasn't that he wouldn't endure some kind of even physical hurt. Because he did. The promise was that he wouldn't be harmed. And there is a world of difference between hurt and harm. Now I say that so that we as believers, as this church and those who are joining with us, I like that expression Karen used, off-site. Those who are part of this church, we may have people name-call us. We may have people mock us. We may have people accuse us of all sorts of things by name-calling. And it may hurt. It may it upsets me when it happens. But that's all it will do. And I hear the word of the Lord. It won't harm you. I'll make sure of it. It won't harm you. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. It's a different way of looking at how the gospel is promoted. That sometimes Jesus is saying to Paul, yep, people are going to oppose you. People are going to insult you. People are going to name call you. Don't let it get to you. Keep going. Keep going. And can I say to us, Lagana, we need to keep going. We need to keep going. No one will attack you to harm you. Note this. For I have many in this city who are my people. And the implication of what Christ said to Paul was this. They have not yet turned to me, but they're mine. And the way they're going to turn to me is by hearing what you say. Now, this causes all kinds of questions in my head, like, well, Jesus, why didn't you just do it? Because surely they would believe you. And then as I wrote this week in this week's pastor's desk, and I went through the Gospel of John, where John gives seven amazing miracles that Jesus did. And the last one just takes the cake. That's when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, there's the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, watching a man who had been dead four days in the tomb walk out of that tomb alive when Jesus summoned him to come back from the dead. Now, here's the appropriate response. Drop to your knees, lift your hands in the air and worship God that he has now appeared in the flesh and he's right there. That's the appropriate response. What was their response? Don't believe it, let's kill him. Isn't that unbelievable? It's just like, what? You have no, argu you have no argument to counter the claim that he's just made, that he's God in the flesh. So what do you do? Physical violence. Let's kill him. And that started the journey to the cross. So, Jesus is saying here to Paul, you keep going because now my mission, my mission is furthered through those who will serve me. And I hope we will all serve him in our way, doing what we can. So when Paul arrived, and this is an important point tonight, when Paul arrived in Corinth, he caught up with Aquila and Priscilla. Oftentimes, Priscilla is mentioned first. So she seems to be the leader in her, her ministry there. Aquila was a tent maker, which meant 
tents were made out of leather and, and tent makers made all kinds of leather goods. So that could be saddles, it could be bags, it could be whatever, shoes, sandals and the like. So Paul was a tent maker. He worked as a tent maker. I don't know if anyone's ever looked at Roman history to discover what uh, leather workers had to do to make the leather pliable after it was skinned. I won't, I won't um, go into too much detail, but urine was involved. And around Rome, people would collect the urine in big containers and they would soak the leather in it. So you can imagine Paul is a leather worker. Can you see the stigma associated with being a leather worker? So with that in mind, let's, let me give you some more background. His ministry among the Corinthians was also characterised by extraordinary signs and wonders. And, and that's the biblical expression, signs and wonders. A sign is a miracle that points somewhere. A miracle is also meant to get you thinking. It's, get, it's supposed to make you wonder. <laughs> Hang on. That guy was dead four days in a tomb. The early stages of rigor mortis would have already started to set in. Jesus just summoned him back from the dead and he's walked out of the tomb. Wouldn't that make you wonder? It should have made you wonder if you were there watching that. So Paul tells the Corinthians, reminds the Corinthians, when I was with you, you saw God do extraordinary signs and wonders. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So this is important for us to understand what Paul is about to say to the Corinthians because we, we need to hear. He was a tent maker. There were dramatic miracles that happened when he was there. And... He didn't just come in one weekend and fly out the next. He was there for 18 months. And that's kind of what I was saying about the, the Scottish Highland guy. If there, was, if there was something scoundrelous about Paul, in 18 months they would have found it. They would have figured it out. But they didn't. And this is the thing that as I read through Acts and then I read through Corinthians, I, I find this, this is scurrilous. Because Paul was there for 18 months, daily teaching the Word of God. In fact, he was so busy teaching the Word of God, he actually had to stop his tent making, which was his only means of financial support. Remember our map further back up around the coast? The Philippians heard that. And so they took up an offering and sent it down to Paul so that he could continue doing what he was doing in a very strategic city, the city of Corinth. And so Paul was there 18 months, and yes, there was opposition outside the church, but the moment he left with Aquila and Priscilla for Syria, that's over the other side of the Aegean Sea, then the false teachers swooped into the church and began to undermine Paul. They began to discredit him. They began to say all kinds of things about him, and great opposition arose to Paul. As a pastor, I find that I find that scurrilous because Paul's not there anymore. The shepherd has left the sheep. 
these sheep would have been left to the responsibility of the householders whom the church was meeting in the various houses. We know of Stephanus, we know of Crispus. He mentions them in chapter 1. So these were kind of like the pastors. But Paul's gone. And so as a result, these false teachers promoted wrong ideas in the Corinthian church that undermined and contradicted what Paul had taught. So the church became very quickly and sadly beset because they were susceptible to these problems. The church became beset with three big problems. And Paul refers to these in his opening chapter. I appeal to you, parakaleo, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And I read that, and I, if, if, if you put your nose to the, the verse in your Bible, what you'll smell is, is the, the, the strong smell of Satan and demons. The enemy has sown discord, and Jesus told parables about this. The word of God is sown, and in the night, the enemy comes and sows weeds. This is weeds. This is the enemy trying to wreak havoc in the church. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here and think, if anyone dares disagree with the pastor, look out, causing division. Because here's a newsflash, you may want to write this down, and I may need to sign it for you. There are times when I can be wrong. There are times when I could be wrong. There are. And I want the, and please pray for me, I want the humility to be able to stand back up here and say, you know, I got that wrong. Or if I've wronged you, to go up to you with the humility to say, you know, I said this to you, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I, because we want, as a church, not to be so arrogant that we can never be wrong, that we can, we can mutually be corrected. Do, do you know what I'm saying? So it's not that Paul is now saying, I want you to agree with everything I say because I'm right and anyone disagrees with me, kick him out of the church. He's not saying that. Not at all. In fact, I think the sign of a really healthy church is indicated when there, when there are disagreements, but we know how to disagree. And we can figure that out. And I think it's the same in marriage. I think it's the same in families. And might I say, I think it's the same in how politics is supposed to work as well. So Paul is saying that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the first problem that Corinth now had was that some false teachers had come in and sought to divide the people. It was a deliberate satanic ploy to divide the people. Paul writes this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is some quarrelling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that one of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Oh, by the way, when Paul left, he went over to Ephesus and Apollos went from Ephesus to Corinth. So that was the relationship there. Or some say, I follow Cephas, which is the Apostle Peter. So it sounds like the Apostle Peter had drifted through Corinth as well at some point. Or I follow Christ. That sounds like the trump card, doesn't it? It sounds like that's, that's the one to go for. Is Christ divided, Paul asks? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? So we, we don't want to be someone who's... And please don't say this. We, we don't want Lagana, our church, to be considered as, that's Andrew Corbett's church. Don't say, I go to Andrew Corbett's church. Can you say, I go to my church? My church is Lagana. I found a spiritual home at Lagana. That's what I want you, wanted you to hear. Oh, that's what I want to hear you say. And here Paul is condemning this divisions and sectarianism. And we'll look at that next week. The third problem that happened in the church was these teachers twisted Paul's teaching on grace. Well, if God's forgiven you of sin, in fact, the worst sin God's forgiven you of, well, you can just go on sinning and enjoy it. I mean, if you're already forgiven, what does it matter? Pick the worst kind of sin and celebrate it because God's grace is big enough to forgive you even in the midst of that. I hope you hear how that's a distortion of what the Bible teaches about grace. And then thirdly, these false teachers undermine the credibility and the authority of the Apostle Paul. They accused Paul. That's all we have time for tonight. Lacking if you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, then please go philosopher. to our website, FindingTruthMatters.org, and select Corinthians Part One from our online store. So now, you Paul, can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on this iTunes, issue that Spotify, and SoundCloud. This As we've heard Paul, tonight, Paul had very good reasons to write to the Corinthians. There were issues emerging amongst them. What we will find is that this epistle, this letter, will teach us that what we believe determines how we live. More These from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with the Corinthians series. It was a, a, Dr. Corbett a, a is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological come College to Australia. House. Thank you for joining us. And to have we look like forward to meeting with you again with at the same time philosopher. next week for another Finding Truth Matters. And the better you thought their philosophy, the more you paid them. And they were professional philosophers. And if you could afford the highest paid philosophers, wow, boy, did you have kudos among the community. So when Paul came, he wasn't a professional apostle. In fact, he was a leather worker, a tent maker. He had a bit of a smell to him. He worked. He, well, these critics said, he can't be that much of an apostle because he has to work there doing that. Therefore, I don't think we should listen to him. Oh boy, when Paul heard about this, did he go to town? And this is what he wrote in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And this is a direct response to these philosophers who had crept into the church and were pretending to be Christians. Eventually, they would call themselves apostles. And in 2 Corinthians, we'll see, they actually started calling Paul, okay, Paul's an apostle, but we are super apostles. And that's the actual term they used. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is where he starts. Verse 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 
and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart, he's quoting the Old Testament, speaking of what the new covenant will be. That it won't be like the philosophy of the world. It won't be all eloquent. It'll be so amazingly simple, so amazingly simple, that people won't believe it. So, with that in mind, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And now he's making a distinction between God's wisdom and the wisdom of these philosophers, which he calls the wisdom of the world. So, verse 21. For since the wisdom in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through their wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to those who believe. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the what of God? The wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. But it wasn't what the philosophers were teaching or preaching. So, Paul's message to the Corinthians was not based on human philosophy. But it was based on the wisdom of God. Can I tell you that most of us who have a physical Bible, you, you have the wisdom of God either on your lap or in your hands. If you've got it on a device, you've got it in there somewhere. On page one, if you go to your Bible, you have to get the right reference, but it's, it's there. This is the wisdom of God. And it's, it's, at times, and this is what we need to understand as believers today, at times the world is going to think it is exactly what Paul described. That's foolish. That's so narrow-minded. That's so outdated. <laughs> but history tells us that society rejects God and his word at their peril. At their peril. And history has shown that when Rome ultimately fought Christianity, rejected Christianity, the Roman Empire itself collapsed. Paul writes this, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, which is how the philosophers got by, or their wisdom or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the message that Paul brought was a message that just didn't make sense to these philosophers. They were all about, well, if God's really on your side, everything you do will succeed. If God was really on the side of Jesus, he would never have died on a cross. That's the ultimate humiliation to die on a cross. <laughs> and so Paul says it is exactly opposite. In God's wisdom, he chose the cross and Christ to be crucified on the cross to bring about the outworking of his wise plan to save and redeem us. I don't think we can change that. I don't think it's outdated. I don't think we need to say that doesn't work anymore or that's not relevant anymore because it still is relevant and it still will sound like foolishness to those 
whose hearts had not been opened by God. And that was my opening prayer. God, open our hearts that we can hear you and believe. Christ crucified. Would you please stand? We're going to sing a song that describes the crucified Christ as God's wisdom, man of sorrows.
You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, Paul had very good reasons to write to the Corinthians. There were issues emerging amongst them. What we will find is that this epistle, this letter, will teach us that what we believe determines how we live. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with the Corinthians series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of the Ghana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. reminder of the message that Paul preached. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, Paul was different to other well-paid professional philosophers who were on the speaking circuit. And after he'd left Corinth, there was a move to discredit him and his teaching. Some things haven't changed, have they? The Word of God appears as foolishness to the world. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with the Corinthian series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.